You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends. Hey, welcome to Season 6, Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. We are kicking around here in 2021. And, uh, you know, for those of you who have been listening for a while, the challenge is pretty simple, guys. Like, what if 2020 didn't create the condition of your soul? What if it revealed it? What if, what if all of the pressures that you faced in 2020 and how you cope with them are all going to be there this year? But if you do something different, uh, it can be different. So I, I'm committed uh, in 2021 to try to help folks find a different gear, dig deeper. And I, I just want to say uh, that's not going to happen by accident. It only takes intentionality and time. And uh, to that end, I'm, I'm actually thrilled to invite my guest today, uh, Jared Patrick Boyd, for a number of reasons. Jared's one of those, uh, in, in Australia, we call it a, a renaissance man. Uh, he's just got a lot of different gears. He's an urban pastor. He made the intentional move to pastor in a low-income side of his city. He's also a spiritual director. And so you can reach out to Jared if you are in need of spiritual direction. And uh, I would just say, if you've never had spiritual direction, then you're in need of it. <laughs> uh, it's just one of those things that, that faith leaders need. We need someone pouring into us. We need someone helping us listen to the voice of God. Jared's also an author. He's written some books. His book that we'll be covering today is Imaginative Prayer, a year-long guide for your child's spiritual formation. Jared also has an online community of resources to help you, particularly those of you who are parents, to equip you so you can have these conversations with your kids. Um, and I, I won't spoil it before we greet Jared. There's some things I want to get into in the book that I just thought were profound. So Jared, welcome to the podcast. Steve, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. So let's let's do three things, and and unfortunately we won't be going very deep in any of them. This is the nature of it, it's your fault, Jared, because you're competent in too many areas. So, <laughs> uh, but let's start with the book. Like you you kick off right on the gate. When I read it, I thought that is the most simple, profound thing. The idea that what if we don't so much tell our kids about Jesus as help them encounter Jesus for themselves, and thus the heart of your book. You've got all these tools and approaches for kids to actually experience God in imagination, which they are already geared to do. Mm -hmm. Just tell us about that. What does that bring to mind for you? I came across imaginative prayer through the exercises of St. Ignatius. So some of you may be familiar with the spiritual exercises. Um, I had a profound encounter with the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius about six or eight years ago. Just a profound experience of God. And I've been studying the scriptures for 20 years. And I've had experience of God. I'm part of the vineyard movement. So, you know, we believe in the presence of God and the experience of God. But usually that happens in a big room, you know, yeah, lots of worship, you know, low lights, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I was having those experiences in my room uh, or on a plane heading overseas. I was like weeping on the plane because I was having an encounter with God. And so I just began as a, as a parent, began to think, gosh, how do I, it just felt like I didn't have the tools to do anything with my kids other than Bible stories. I just wanted to try to figure out how to have, help my kids have an encounter with God. And so that's sort of, I began to sort of think about, about imaginative prayer for kids. Yeah. And you write early in the book about your own journey. And I, th I think you named one, I would say maybe even the number one Christian parenting burden, which is, how can I lead my kids in a way that I was never raised in? Mm, yeah. yeah. Tell us about your own journey of, of how you figured that out. Yeah. And this is where it's like, you know, my book is not, you know, I know you're, you're, you deal a lot in themes of, you know, family systems and, you know, managing anxiety. It's obviously not a book about that, but it, it stems from my own anxiety around this question yeah. because, um, I, I don't think I was ever sort of given any framework around the love of God, the kindness of God, the generosity of God, the wooing of God, all of those sort of more affective postures of God. Um, you know, I grew up in a, a, I'm grateful for my, you know, coming to know the Lord at a young age, but I, I think about, and I don't know where I got this. I'm sure I picked this up along the way, but you think about the apostle Paul who, was a student of Gamaliel. I mean, that guy knew the scriptures and yet he didn't get it. 
he was persecuting Christians and yet he knew the scriptures and he didn't actually understand what was happening until he had an encounter with Christ. And so then once he had an encounter with Christ, he began to see and experience the scriptures differently. And I just think as a parent, you know, I just, I think I carried some anxiety. I think a lot of parents carry anxiety around how do I make sure my kids make it out of my house believing in Jesus. Yeah, that's right. There's all this pressure. Yeah. And I just think that that really gets in the way. And so at the end of the day, I came, I came across a, an, again, an Ignatian principle, which is you cannot give away what you don't have. And that's the sticky point. Um, and I begin to, as a pastor, begin to sort of press on parents in this way and just say, Hey, listen, you can have an impact on the life of your kids. And you may not like, unless you yourself have real life with God, unless you're sharing out of an authentic experience of receiving forgiveness and experiencing the love of God and God, God will still get them somehow, but it may not be through, through you. Yeah. And, and I begin to sort of press on that a little bit and help parents understand that I, th- I think we as parents really need to take most of the responsibility for the formation of our kids. And then the church is there to sort of help us do that work, help us put language to it, give us tools. But we've got to be dipping out of a full well and pouring it out rather than sort of scrambling around in anxiety. So that's sort of the framework that I, that the book kind of addresses and, and how I'm operating a little bit. Yeah, I really appreciate that whole like channel that you've opened up because I know in our church context, like the, the church I lead, it, it, we're, we're more on the rational spectrum. We're out of balance, I would say. Hmm. And so I would say the majority of the followers of Jesus in our church, they feel stuck in how to disciple their kids because they think of it through the lens of, well, I don't know much scripture, so how do I blank? And I, I just feel like you've bypassed that whole concern by simply, like almost like skipping the middleman. Like you, you're saying, never mind, just... Here are some practices where you as a parent can encounter the living, loving Christ. Mm-hmm. And then here are some practices where you can help your kids do it. I also love that you're, you're harnessing what comes so naturally to a child, which is imagination, which comes so unnaturally to an adult. That's in right. In fact, in my field of work, we often measure somebody's emotional health by how much imagination they have. Because typically mm-hmm. chronic anxiety robs our imagination, keeps us kind of stuck and rigid. That's right. Talk to us a little bit, Jared, about age range. Like, let's say our listeners have different age kids, like, you know, toddler, uh, elementary school, middle, high school. How are we on human development in your materials? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, this sort of blown some categories for me. Like, I was actually a human development minor in college. I was a major for a while. So it's a little bit informed in that, but I'm by no means an expert. But it's really targeted to, I would say, second to eighth grade. And the probably the sweet spot is third to sixth grade. Because right around third grade, kids are able to really grasp concrete ideas in ways that they just can't at younger ages. So there's a kind of a marrying of imagination and real concepts. But that's the work that my book is trying to to get across. And then around, you know, and obviously for different kids, it's different. But around seventh or eighth grade, teens become a little bit more like, or less playful. Hmm. And so there's a playfulness to the kind of work that I'm trying to do. Um, but the, the funny thing is, is, you know, the book was published by University Press in 2017. And since then, I've had several churches reach out and say, hey, we're using this in our adult Bible studies. Yeah. I would say across the board, yeah, there's, there's like a catechesis nature to the work that I'm doing, which is, uh, available, I think to all of us to try to, uh, and obviously it's written for kids. So some of it's going to feel a little like, but I was a kid once, so I know how to, <laughs> I know how to go there, you know? So, but developmentally the, the sweet spot I think is, is third grade to sixth grade and a lot of repetition over the course of those years. So now, you know, my kids are a little older, 17, 15, 13, and nine. I'm about to start this with my nine-year-old in 2021. But with my older girls, with a real quick sort of indicator, I can I can bring them back to one of the imaginative prayers that I led them through, you know, four years ago. And sort of that experience that they had, or even the concept that we worked with in conversation, it kind of comes right back in 
And that, that's the beauty of imagination is it sort of, it works like memory. You know, we could probably go down a huge rabbit hole there, but when you form pictures in your mind, those pictures get stored similarly to how memories get stored. Hmm. And so I think that's the beautiful thing that God has given us in our imaginative abilities, you know? Oh, I love that. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, a good friend of mine named Jack who started attending our church, boy, probably 12, 14 years ago, wouldn't have said he was a follower of Jesus, got baptized into the way of Jesus, was really excited. And, and somewhere not long after that disappeared from my, uh, what we call big church. Hmm. And, uh, and he, he was quite sheepish. He, he said to me, look, I, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. I just get so much more out of the fourth grade lesson when I volunteer in children's church than your sermons. Wow. And I thought that was amazing. I loved, I was like, no, that's exactly where you should be. And he was sitting crisscross applesauce on the floor with a group of fourth graders and both listening to the lesson. And then as a small group leader, having to then try to guide these kids as he himself was being formed. And I thought that was a beautiful metaphor for most parents. And why I personally think your book is so helpful is you really are giving the novice a way in so that they don't have to lead their kids where they, you know, in an area they have no idea about. But I would like, before we switch to the, our next topic, tell us about your online community. You actually have resources for church leaders. And I'm particularly thinking, Jared, of children's ministries that, that also think through children's curriculum in the lens of Bible knowledge. Hmm. I think you are providing a whole other way of doing children's curriculum. It doesn't have to displace it, but I'd love just for you to tell us about that and how people can access that. Yeah. So the vision on for the online community, it's really a, a video resource um, that takes people through the book. Um, I'm actually still in, in the process of producing it, but by the end of it, it'll be over a hundred videos. And the idea is that this would be a resource that sort of sits on the shelf of a, of a local church. And, you know, all of the families in that church have access to the material. They can go through it at their own pace. And every imaginative prayer in my book, uh, there are 36 imaginative prayers in the book. Every single one will have a short sort of theological framework. Um, video. So like five minutes of me just saying, Hey, here's why this topic is important. Here's why the love of God is important theologically. Uh, there'll be an imaginative prayer that's set to some nice music that you can just hit play on and watch it with your kids. Um, or it could be used in a, in a Sunday school environment. And then on the backside, there's another short video that just really nitty gritty practical gives parents, Hey, here's what I want you to do this week. Here are four questions that I want you to, to talk with about your child this week, about the imaginative prayer that you led them through um, this week. And here's some things for you to think about in your own life with God. Are you taking this in? Um, so it's really straightforward. Um, every parent gets to go at their own pace. And my hope is to partner with churches to help bring this as a resource into the life of a family, uh, where families are just sort of slowly working their way through this as like a family catechism. Okay, so if a church leader, if that's really piqued their interest and they want to dive in, how do they find that resource? Yeah, just uh, imaginativeprayer.com. Great. And you can reach out to me and you can sign up. There's a free trial, so you can, you can kick the tires a little bit and uh, be happy to connect with anybody. Great. So, folks, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So if, if you're listening to this, you're saying, man, I, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. Jared actually kindly gave me access to it uh, last year, and it's 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 just that I don't know anybody else who is approaching children's ministry this way. So I'd encourage you to click that link and um, check out that resource. It, it's, it's just a whole other gear. So we're going to pivot just a little, Jared, because you're also a spiritual director. And it's been my experience that faith leaders are often the last to know in the room when they're not okay. <laughs> uh, and I think it's because we're others focused. Like it's not always, it's not an ego thing necessarily. I think it's just, I don't know. Anyway, it is. It's the way it is. Tell us about the importance of spiritual direction and, and the benefit of it. Yeah, man. I, I started meeting with a spiritual director about 12 years ago. And I, I remember my first meeting with a mentor, uh, a real spiritual father for me. Uh, Dave Nixon is his name. Love, love my friend Dave. And I remember finishing 
realizing it felt like the first time I had ever been listened to. Now, some of that has to do with me, um, but uh, it, it was like I walked away from my spiritual direction appointment realizing that there's a whole lot more going on inside of me than I was aware of. And, you know, I was probably 29 or 30 years old. And to discover that at that age was actually a real gift. And so I've just been meeting with a spiritual director since then. And oftentimes people will ask me, well, like, what is spiritual direction? And I just simply ask them a question, which is this, who do you have in your life that is helping you pay attention to your life with God, to what you're praying about, to, to what you're disappointed by, to how you're grieving? Like, who is, who's doing that for you? And most people realize, well, nobody's doing that. Thing. And then I just say, well, that's, well, that's what I do. <laughs> that's what a spiritual director does is they just help you pay attention over time to the little uh, bits of work that God is doing in your life. And, you know, I like I had an appointment last week with my spiritual director who I've now been meeting with for, I think, six or seven years monthly. And we're talking about some of the same things that we talked about a half a decade ago. Yeah, right. So it's super helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That, one of the things I try to coach people on is is the sign that you are in the grip of anxiety is when your solution to any problem is more of the same or try harder. That's right. And that kind of tends to jog you once you can realize, oh man, I'm trying to solve this problem with more of the same. Hmm. And so that's that's been really my rallying cry as I've been listening to so many pastors that if you want this year to be different, you have to do something different. So I would just say to those who are trying to white knuckle their spiritual leadership on their own, hmm. you, it's okay to budget church budget money for you to get spiritual direction. Like you, hmm. you can be kind to yourself that way because it does, it usually does cost money, not always, but, yeah. uh, and it's, it's money well spent. And a lot of people do rush to a therapist and I'm a big fan of therapy. I happen to be married to a therapist. Hmm. Spiritual direction is different. It's, it has some overlap, but it's, it, I, I like the way Jared just put it. It's somebody that's helping you attend to the voice of God in your life. And yeah, I'll also just say there's so many pastors I know, and I, I've had this battle myself. We get into ministry because we love God mm. and we want to help people know the love of God. And somewhere along the way, we end up doing spreadsheets mm. and just spiritual direction kind of helps you get back to that early essence of why you got into it in the first place. So, uh, you can connect with Jared through uh, the website in the link as well. And, um, if, if that's something you want to reach out for Jared, the third leg of our stool here is urban ministry hmm. and systemic poverty. Well, why do you think a faith leader should be involved in the systemic issues around poverty, regardless of their zip code? Oh man. I mean, that's a huge, obviously a huge question. And, and I'll just say on the front side, I, I feel like I am uh, a real newbie to this conversation. I, I feel like I'm only five years into really thinking about systemic poverty, particularly since we moved into the neighborhood around that. I think, you know, the teaching of Jesus is really clear that he is with and among the poor. So many people want an encounter with God. And they go to the next conference and they look for an encounter with God or they go to the next book. They hop on Amazon. What's the next thing that's going to get it for me? And I think it's really, it's really simple. Uh, go and be among the poor and meet Christ. I feel like I'm new to this thinking. Like I said, maybe a half a decade. A lot of the work I do uh, is really pulling from the monastic tradition. So I've started a religious order called the Order of the Common Life, sort of out of the vineyard movement. And the monastic stream has always recognized that at, at the basic sort of stance, our posture to the world is one of hospitality. And monasteries all throughout the world for centuries have been hosting the wealthy and the poor. But more often than not, you'll read about encounters with Christ through the poor. And so we, we moved our family, uh, five years ago to, uh, the poorest neighborhood in our city. It's been super hard in, in so many ways and uh, we wouldn't change a thing. Hmm. 
wouldn't change a thing. What's being difficult about it? Yeah, we were actually just talking to some folks about this last night, just reflecting, you know, like in our old neighborhood, we walked barefoot after dinner almost every night. In our new neighborhood, which is now our home, we would never dare to walk barefoot, you know, because there's needles, there's lots of drug paraphernalia. And in fact, we very, very rarely go on walks because it's just not, it's just not a fun place. Uh, there's a lot of systemic poverty. Uh, say when we moved, probably 40% of the houses were boarded up, um, pretty bad. Now it's, you know, we're one of the conversations that we're navigating in our neighborhood is that it is a neighborhood that is quickly gentrifying. Mm. And that's a force that's basically unstoppable. I mean, we talked a little bit before we turned the mics on around why those forces are unstoppable, but trying to be present in a place where the rich and poor are now colliding is where we have, we have thought that that's probably going to be the sweet spot of our church plant is, is helping to navigate the rich and poor coming together. That's been part of our vision all along. My thesis has always been that economic diversity is a harder bridge to cross than ethnic diversity. What's your take on that? Man, I don't know that I have a a real like clear take on it, but I have been surprised at how hard it is to meet my neighbors who are from this place. Um and I'm a transplant. So our our neighborhood is is a decent mix racially, but historically is more like uh Appalachian and I've never been invited into a home in 5 years. And so there's something about coming in as a, you know, well-educated person into an, an area that, you know, probably has very little folks that have a college degree, for example, you can just feel the distance. Hmm. And I have felt, um, rightfully, uh, an outsider. I am an outsider. And, and I think that that does have to do with that, that wealth gap and, and, and what, and what it really stems from. So I think systemic poverty, a neighborhood like ours, what we, what we recognize over and over again is that there's a lot of folks with years of trauma because poverty is a form of trauma. And that tends to close folks off to new experiences and new relationships. And so I think that maybe to support your thesis, one of the reasons that it's harder is that, um, for different reasons, I think both people who have a lot of wealth and people who are stuck in poverty, they tend to be closed off in different ways, but it, it creates a lot of barriers around relationship. Yeah. You and I are both, uh, doing work among housing initiatives and policy. And, I, you know, I just had no idea in seminary, um, how to navigate the ways that political policy intentionally keep people trapped in poverty and as a prophetic voice in the city, disrupting that status quo costs me. Mm, yeah. I, I think you've had that same experience and, <laughs> and the forces that, that are fairly deep and layered to make sure it doesn't change. Uh, you're working in a very low income area. I'm working in a very high income area trying to get, opportunity for low-income people hmm. and it's been interesting the names are being called and the some of the racism that's come out through that conversation um tell us a bit about your journey of trying to move the needle on housing opportunity yeah i mean um i think this is where the conversation around gentrification comes in when we first moved in five years ago there were several properties that we tried to to get, we tried to work with our city on. In fact, there's one property that we, we had investors, we had an architect, we had everything lined up to, to do some good work in our neighborhood. The city basically said, yes, we'd love to work with you on this. We'll sell you this property. And then they sort of pulled it out from underneath us. And that building is still vacant. Uh, so it's not that they had other plans for it. Um, and in fact, it's vacant to the degree that the roof has collapsed. Mm. And so I've just been reflecting on that in that it seems like our city would prefer to allow that building to, to sort of undergo decay than to, 
to create a pathway for us to serve the poor. And because it's in a place that they're trying to do development work, for them it's strategic. Well, we don't want we don't want this faith community, this nonprofit, to keep poor people around. We're actually trying to push them out. Now, that's the narrative. That's the story in my mind. Yeah. Um, and it's probably not the most generous reading of the situation, but it is a likely reading. <laughs> so uh, somewhere I just felt like somewhere along the way, I felt a little whisper in prayer where I felt like the Lord said, you're working in a system of, that works with power. Yeah. You don't have any power. So I want you to just pay attention to who has the favor. And, um, one of the women that I pastor with, her name is Hannah. She, she worked, uh, in the court system with women who were caught up in human trafficking and, and she had a lot of favor. And so I just started following Hannah's favor and we have helped her start another nonprofit called Sanctuary Night that, that basically is present in our neighborhood to women who are caught up in prostitution. So it's not really solving the housing problem, but, uh, we have seen how she's been able to really step out in leadership, um, because of favor in a world that operates in power. And so that's, I think, one of the biggest lessons I've been trying to sort of get in me is, uh, that I think that one of the ways that God works is, is with favor. And he doesn't really work with the exertion of power, which is how everybody else works. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if that's makes sense, but that's sort of been our experience. I have friends who live in Italy. They're Americans. They've lived in Italy 30 something years. They raised their kids there. They originally went over there to be missionaries and believe they'd plant a church and convert people and on and on. And somewhere along the way, they realized that their job in their lifetime was to simply gently and slowly debunk all the assumptions against Jesus mm. in their city. Because in that particular city, I, I can't make a blanket statement about Italy, but everyone they met had such a strong negative opinion about Jesus and the Bible because of the corruption of the Catholic church. Mm. And every non-Catholic church, every Protestant church that came to plant closed. They didn't last. And so my friends are now saying it's, it's for us to open the window and it's for the next generation to step in and proclaim Christ and actually possibly build something. And I, I, I marvel at the patience of that. And I do think a lot of people who have never experienced poverty for themselves, that maybe they don't have any understanding of systemic nature of poverty, the forces. They have no patience and they get involved and get disillusioned or angry or when they don't see the kinds of results that they were hoping for. They don't recognize that that need for result is more about themselves than the person they think they're helping. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate, you know, you're five years in and you're describing yourself as a rookie. <laughs> What's your reaction to that? I think somewhere along the way, I've become a person that thinks really long term. So I'm always thinking about the long game. And so I'm more interested in what happens over 25 or 30 years than I am over five years. And that's been really hard for me. I think it's part of the formational work because I, I definitely used to be one of those people that and, and in many ways, sometimes I still am like, why aren't things happening quicker? Like in church planting, for example, it seems like every month I'm like, well, there's nothing going on. <laughs> and then you start just getting little bits of people's stories and you're like, wait, okay, there is, th there are things going on. And yeah. so Steve, I think I have become a really long-term thinker, um, thinking about, you know, 30 years, 50 years, a hundred years. And that is a little disorienting for people, but I think that that's, probably how we need to think about our cities. It's good. You know, and honestly, in ministry in general, you know, famous, famous fleeting and pastors really want to be famous. And it's so weird. <laughs> and it's weird when I feel that in my own life. It's weird when I, when I see it sort of operating out there. And I just think we need to like, just look at the long view.
folks, we're just going to put pause on the interview because I'm introducing a new feature in uh, 2021. And that is where somebody submits a case or a question and they wanted to bat it around. Sometimes I'll just read it, but sometimes I'm going to have the person actually join me on the podcast. And that's the case today. Uh, I run a community, as you probably know, called Capable Life. And it's an online paid community. People watch videos on chronic anxiety. The, the Really, the best part of the community is we gather together monthly on Zoom, but also there's this great confidential discussion forum where people are chatting to each other. One of the channels on the forum is, hey, submit a question or a case. So Mike Brown is joining me. Mike uh, is a nonprofit leader, a pastor uh, in California. Uh, Mike and I have known each other. We've connected. And uh, he submitted a case and I read it and I thought, all right, Mike, let's get you on the show. So Mike, welcome to the Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. I know you're a longtime listener, first time guest. I am. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. So I'm going to do this weird thing, Mike, where I'm going to read to you what you wrote and then let's see what you want to add and and we'll kick into it. Let's do it. All right. So here's what Mike said. Uh, I know a lack of differentiation has been an issue for me. When I began practicing it, I found myself going back to a familiar practice of independent detachment. I can listen without reacting. I can be calm on the surface. I can appear to have my body under control, but inside I'm moving away from someone who I perceive as a threat due to their anxiety. I really want to learn how to remain connected to someone I deeply disagree with while maintaining my own convictions, posture, and desire. What's the step beyond paying attention to our inner dialogue, being aware of how we're feeling, etc. All right, Mike, what do you want to add to that? Because you wrote that probably a week or, or a couple of weeks ago. So what context do you want to add? And then let's dig into it. I think the context for me is initially, uh, prior to any kind of inner work, I was unaware of the self-awareness piece completely. And so I would not have had categories to describe the way I was feeling in certain meetings and why. And as I began to do this work, I began to realize that the differentiation piece is a newer realization of the way that I have been enmeshed in some meetings where my well-being is somehow dependent on their agreement or affirmation. And the first piece of self-awareness is taking a step back and realizing I can be okay without them being okay with this meeting, this conversation, or me. And that was the win. But then as I learned more about differentiation, the concept of remaining connected while being distant became a focus. And I'm thinking specifically of an actual meeting with an actual person, although I've had this meeting with numerous people. And it is when I am leading a larger group. And as typically happens, the most anxious person in the group begins to dominate our discussion. I'm frustrated because I want to be in control of that. And now control is being taken away from me. I genuinely may feel I had an outcome in mind I was driving towards, and I can sense the anxiety of everybody around the table now increasing. And because I know these people as their pastor, I know who is likely to step in to defend, who is likely to step in and defuse, who is likely to step in and take responsibility on themselves when there is none, all of the different coping mechanisms. And um, my question was just in a meeting like that, which I feel is common for most pastors, how do we remain firm in our convictions and in what we had hoped to accomplish or were leading towards? Um, or even in um, ideologies, while disagreeing with this person and yet still being able to see them not as someone who's against us, yeah, but as someone that deserves to be listened to in order yeah. to try to diffuse the situation and stay connected. Oh, what a great question. I'm so glad I asked for more context because that what I love about it, Mike, is you're obviously, you know, you've been doing these materials for a while and you're actually giving us some gold on just noticing anxiety in groups and recurring dynamics. But as I'm listening to you, I've got a few thoughts. So so the way obviously this works is you present a case 
you're the one with all the nuance and the context. I don't know these people. And I'm all, so I'm always going to be testing, throwing up test balloons. And then you, we, we both, you and I both trust that you know what's right and I don't. That's kind of the way this works. Um, otherwise, I end up being Dr. Phil, where you give a little bit of context and I give a really long answer. So one theory is that we should play with is if your history has been enmeshment, I'm not okay if you're not okay with me, then the the correction of that can feel like detachment when you're not actually detached. Hmm. If, if you're so used to being enmeshed, this would be my story. I was so used to feeling that feel of approval that when I started to differentiate, I felt like I didn't care because I was just, I only knew how care felt like enmeshment. So that's one, one option. I'll, I'll throw three at you and then we'll see what's resonating. The other one is I think if you consider differentiation as a long-term, more like a marriage than a date. So the, the meeting you're in, you're not in a date with these people where we're going to break up, you know, we're not going to go on a second date. It's more of a long-term relationship. So therefore, differentiation is less at risk, blow by blow. Therefore, in the moment, it's very natural to feel frustrated. Man, you've tanked the meeting. Like, I don't want to do all this extra work. Now look at all this anxiety spreading. Done and I've taken these tools, so I'm more aware of it now. So there's more work for me. But under that, you know what? I really like this person. I'm really glad they're on the team, right? That's you're still very much connected to them. So I think sometimes we think of differentiation as a moment by moment tightrope rather than a bond that's hard to break. Mm. So that'd be my second thought. And I'll throw a third and then let's see what you think. The third is if that's true. That gives you so much good news for after the meeting. And I think the simplest way to stay connected is to literally move towards somebody, which in my case usually means, hey, can we debrief the meeting? And can I share what's going on in me when you're doing this thing? And I don't want to feel like I'm going to tell you how it feels and I don't like that. So that's why I'm naming it because I really appreciate you. You know, it's kind of this idea of debriefing through confession. And and then the next step after that is to say, I would love to hear what it's like for you because I bet it's hard for you too, right? Now that is a move of empathy and connection. And particularly if the person says, oh man, Mike, I know, like I always say too much. And I go away from the meeting and I'm like, why'd you do that? You kind of, you you torpedoed Mike's meeting. Now, now you're connected because you're vulnerable with each other. So let me stop there and see how those three are resonating first. I think what is most accurate is when I am at my unhealthiest, which is less and less, thank God, um, I have a tendency to view people in terms of for me or against me, yeah. which is unhelpfully binary in a way yeah. that stems any kind of real connection. Yeah. When I have followed up with frustrations, I think I have exclusively focused on the difference of ideas, not in actually communicating how their posture made me feel. Yeah. Again, because I wouldn't have had a framework for that initially. And now it is something that I am still learning. That's one of my brave practices. Yeah. Um, and I would say the last thing, what you said first really hit home because I know that my tendency um, is towards detachment. And when I am angry, I go icy cold and withdraw from everyone. And I don't want to do that. And somehow I've gotten that mixed up with the idea of differentiation. Yeah where they're both true, I can detach, but also want that enmeshment. And so that's something I have to think more about what it would look like for detachment actually moving towards the median when I feel like I'm backing way off. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I had a situation a few years ago now where one of my employees, we had interns and one of my employees in front of several of our team, we were all just sitting around having lunch. It was casual, but she corrected an intern when she was in the wrong about a cultural value of our church. And it's a long story, but basically there was this lady who's a bit needy and challenging 
And my employee had kind of given into that lady's anxiety, was carrying it to the intern and violating a core value of our church to try to help this lady's anxiety stay intact. So here I am, the lead pastor, watching this happen in my group and realizing, oh man, this is a core value of ours and I've got five employees. I can't, I have to, I have to do the terrible thing of correcting my employee who happens to also be one of my neighbors in my neighborhood and we're dear friends. It was awful. And I felt awful for my, my friend who I corrected in public. But I, I, there's no way for me to, in that moment, as a long story, I, I, I had to get somewhere. So I rush off to my next thing and then I'm calling every person in that meeting starting with the person I corrected. And everybody's still at lunch. I'd literally just left and as I'm walking out, I'm calling. And, I, and I'll, I'll call her Jane. Hey, Jane, I want to name what just happened. I'm so sorry. Like, it, I've, I want you to know, I felt trapped. But what I was doing is basically communicating our relationship is 1,000 times more robust than that experience we just had together. You and I are well with each other. And of course, what she did, she's like, no, no, I'm, you are so right. Like, I don't... I just caught her anxiety and what we did. But then she got to hear as I called everyone. She, all these phones start ringing one at a time. Hey, Alex, I'm so sorry that you sat through that. I, I want you to know that's not the way we normally do things. But that was kind of my effort of differentiating. In other words, moving towards someone after I felt like we'd had a pretty tense situation. So I always think after the encounter, there's so much good news to, to like you said, not talk about the topic, but the way we relate. Hmm. That's excellent. That's all I got. Any other final thoughts, Mike? And then we'll wrap it up. No, it is always the good news of the gospel brought home fresh to me when I hear the baseball analogy that a 300 RBI is one out of three tries because I also labor under the expectation that I need to knock it out of the park at every time and every moment. Right. And these are just those poignant reminders that maybe the win in that situation was catching it so soon after the fact that I really blew it and giving me an opportunity to step into that situation different next time. Yeah, great, great stuff. Mike, thanks for being willing to be our first Capable Life member to come on and present a case. And uh, at this point, folks, we'll have a little musical interlude and then brace yourself as we put Jared through the gauntlet of anxiety questions. Friends, uh, in January, I launched a brand new online community called Capable Life. The first three letters of Capable Life, obviously C-A-P, and they remind us to be calm, aware, and present. And the whole point of the community, it's interactive, it's, it's video resources, it's a confidential online discussion forum. Right now, we've got over 100 people in seven different countries on there. And boy, you want to see the discussion, people opening up their heart and soul about what makes them anxious and what they're going to practice this week. It's an intentional online community. We do monthly Zooms with a coach. We do masterclasses diving into some of the deeper aspects of family systems theory. And this podcast is now sponsored by Capable Life. And, and you know, for my long-term listeners, you know what that means. The podcast doesn't make any money. <laughs> it's just that I'm trying to help people uh, get better. So we've now become the official sponsor. Uh, I just made a deal with myself. It's a really good rate. Anyway, if you really want to find a different gear to lead in, uh, Capable Life is designed to give you tools to function as a calm, aware, present human in the workplace and the home place. It is for faith leaders, but we have a lot of people of faith who are in business. We have some stay-at-home parents. And uh, as we grow, we'll be opening up private channels based on where you spend the most of your time. So based on your vocation or if you're a parent, there'll be private chat opportunities where you can connect with others. www.capablelife.me is where you go for more information. Pricing starts at $28 a month. And you can join today and you can start that video series right now and get some relief. Jared, you're a spiritual director, so people are going to be under the false impression that you're always calm and nothing ever bothers you. And so to that end, I would like to inflict upon you 
the gauntlet of leadership anxiety questions. Do it. So here's the first one. What sorts of situations, leadership situations, generate anxiety for you? It doesn't have to be exhaustive. Just give us two or three. Yeah, I think the main one for me is when I, when I feel misunderstood or when I know that I'm being misunderstood. It like it's like it, it turns my brain to mush. And so I think, you know, I, I try to be thoughtful, try to communicate well. And if somebody's not hearing me right, it's like my immediate, like I, I do, I feel anxious. I get irritated on the inside and I can, I've got skills to sort of cover that up and to move forward. But, <laughs> but that's where I really hate being misunderstood. And I yeah. think that's where I get, I get a little triggered by that. So when you are misunderstood and let's say, you know, there's times where you manage it well, let's look at the times where you don't manage it as well and you end up in the grip of it. What kind of message is going through your head? That's a great question. What's the message sort of like, I, I don't know how to better communicate this. Like I'm out of ideas or, you know, I, to be honest, the real shadow side is I tend internally to blame the other person. And I know that that's obviously like a huge red flag for myself. If I start doing that, I know, man, something's going on. Uh, obviously over the years, I've learned to take a, a couple steps back and not just push forward. And so then like, so for when this happens in my marriage, for example, we've learned now, Hey, why don't we just come back in like 30 minutes? Let's just try this again. <laughs> Whereas before we would just try to you know, in any kind of leadership, the, in my opinion, the overwhelming majority of people are good-hearted and people of good intent. And so you become misunderstood, you work it out, you move on. There's always a fractional minority. I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think it's small. They have a vested interest in misunderstanding you. Mm, of course, yes. How do you navigate that with your need to be understood? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately... Some of the work I've done is recognizing that it's good to be understood, but I don't need to be understood. Okay. It's good for me to try to understand other people, but I don't have to understand other people. And sometimes it's like just to say out loud, yeah, I don't know that I understand. If I'm trying to understand someone else or, hey, I can see that you're trying to understand me, but it doesn't seem like you understand. I don't feel understood. Um, we can we can move on or we can keep trying. What what would you like to do? <laughs> so that's that's basically I think how I have solved that problem. Okay, so one of the uh, ways we manage anxiety is we we learn about our family of origin and all the ways we bring our family of origin into every encounter. Hmm. Could you just give us maybe one trait that you've inherited from your family that is an asset and one that's a liability in your leadership? Yeah, I think probably, um, probably the same. I hope this isn't cheating, but the same, the same is for both. So I think one of the things I've struggled with over the years is, is workaholism. And so I think that has both, like, let me rephrase that. Working hard as an attribute is something that I learned in my family. My dad in particular, I think did a great job of modeling hard work, you know, in his own career, but also just sort of Hey, we have yard work to do. Let's get out some shovels and we're going to work hard. We're going to, we're going to do this. And I really am grateful for having learned how to work hard. The flip side of that is that for the longest time, that was like my only lever to pull is that <laughs> if I ran into a problem, I would just work harder. And it's also been because it, it served me really well for like 20 some years. Like I could just work this thing and work it. And, um, a lot of success came in that way, but then that lever sort of begins to wear out and I had to find some other levers. So the way that that impacts my leadership is that I often, I mean, just to use some of the family systems language, it has shown up for me as kind of becoming a classic over-functioner. Yeah. So that, that's something in my leadership I've been paying attention to the past half decade. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. One of the things I'm becoming more and more keenly aware of is the gap that so many faith leaders feel between what they believe about God and what they experience from God. One of the reasons I was excited about your book is you just hit that gap head on. You just name it, that there are things we believe about God that we don't necessarily encounter from God. 
I, I, so for in my life, for example, I spent too much of my time as a pastor proclaiming the love of God, but not feeling it. Oh. There's a gap there. I'm curious with the intentionality that you've had with experiential connection, is there a gap for you in any area where you believe something about God, but you don't necessarily see it or encounter it? Man, um, what a great, I, I think around, I've been, I've been really doing a deep dive into the incarnation. So let, let me just start with where I'm at right now. Um, I've been reading St. Athanasius on the incarnation and reading some early church fathers on, on some of that stuff. And just yesterday I was reading and praying through John chapter 11, where Jesus is, uh, kind of confronted with Lazarus who's in the tomb and Martha and Mary and, and the way I'm reading through David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, which is really profound, by the way, he says, it, it's like he groaned in his spirit. And I think the, the thing I believe about God is that God it knows what I'm experiencing, but I forget that Jesus is God in human flesh. And so as I was re- reflecting and praying yesterday, I was just like, I know I know what that's like. I know what it's like to groan in my spirit and to feel the sadness and to give myself over to the turmoil that I feel. But I totally forget sometimes and don't experience that, that God knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> when in fact he does. And that was quite moving for me yesterday. Um, my, my reading of scripture is not always that profound, but yesterday I had a profound encounter mm. with that passage. So. Mm. John tells us in First John 4 that perfect love casts out fear. And in my studies of anxiety, I've come to see that sometimes you can pray your way through it. Sometimes you just have to displace it. And you can displace it with love and laughter. Those are two of the simplest tools. <laughs> so therefore, it becomes really important to become keenly aware of when you feel love. So when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? I think it's definitely with my wife and kids, generally one-on-one. I'm a, I'm a one-on-one kind of guy, particularly in our family life. Um, and I get a lot of one-on-one time. So for example, just last night, one of my daughters played me a song on her ukulele and I'm like, man, I could just eat that up forever. So that bedtime routine where I connect with each of my kids, I'm trying to be present to them to love them. But more often than not, what I get is, man, I just feel so loved by the time that they spend. So, yeah. Jared, thanks very much for coming on the show that, you know, we could have taken any one of the three areas with you and gone deep, but I thought it was really helpful just to hear from you on these areas and, and folks, you know, Jared's contact and his website will be in the show notes. I really encourage you to connect and look into what he's offering. Cause I, I think uh, he's a needed guide for this day. So Jared, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks Steve for having me. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.